Yeah, so we're outside of the town of Rogersville, which was once considered uh, the Brussels sprouts capital of Canada. There was a lot of Brussels sprouts (laughs) grown here. Wow. I'm Derek Leahy, host of the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast. During the growing season of 2023, a group of folks from Quebec, the West Coast, and the Prairies traveled to Canada and met with, shared a meal with, and laughed with farmers and ranchers who are practicing regenerative agriculture. One of the first stops was Rogersville, New Brunswick, which, unbeknownst to us at the time, it used to be the Brussels sprouts capital of Canada. We're on this rural road called called Pleasant Ridge. So Mm -hmm. it is a bit of a ridge. Where the farm is at is like the highest point in the region. It's not, I mean super high but you do have access to some of the nicest sunsets um, over the fields. Most of us in this traveling band had never met before and we worked for different organizations. One big thing we had in common was that we were determined to shine a big old spotlight on 10 farms and ranches that were regenerating the land and ecosystems while producing healthy and nutritious food. We also got to take in some pretty amazing sunsets too. In the case of the poor film crew, they had to take in some pretty amazing sunrises. Thank God the golden hour isn't a thing in podcasting. And we're on a couple different properties. We have this one main piece of land that we use for growing vegetables and where we have our packing warehouse and the house, the farmhouse that's a collective space for Uh, the kitchen, lunches, bathroom, as well as uh, hosting woofers on the farm, um, which stands for uh, Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. So we do have travelers from all over the world that come and stay for a couple of weeks or sometimes a month and help out in exchange for a place to live and food and some kind of cultural exchange. Through farm-to-table dinners, videos, webinars, articles, and this podcast series, we captured what we saw and heard during our travels in the hopes of making regenerative agriculture principles and practices more accessible to the public, making them something that anyone who eats can understand and appreciate. So that's our main piece of property, um, which is about 11 acres of um, either vegetables or cover crops and another about 25 acres in hay and then the rest because it's on 100 acres is woodlot but we have access to many other fields uh, that my dad owns and we have another small part of the farm about 500 meters down the road where we have our greenhouse that's connected to a wood heating source furnace Mm. that's why it's not in the same area and uh, the pig barn and a place where we keep our pastured uh, chickens where we pull the their coop and move the fence on pasture another two kilometers down the other side where we have our um, beef cows on pasture and I guess the reason that we're a little bit spread out is that across generations people would set up close but not right next to their their parents I guess or but it's still all connected but a little bit distinct I guess um one where the where the beef cows are that was my grandparents house that is now 
the house of my colleague Pierre Olivier okay. and where the pig barn is and the silos and the grain mill and the greenhouse and the chickens that's close to where my dad lives and then the other the main farmhouse is where Kevin and I used to live mm-hmm. but has now become bought by the the co-op to be used as a collective space so that's why we're a bit spread out but it does have some advantages and we have access to a lot of land um, compared to maybe that can be a challenge for many farms and especially new farms and new farmers. My name is Rebecca Fraser-Chiasson. I live on Pleasant Ridge outside of the small town of Rogersville between Miramichi and Moncton in New Brunswick and I'm a farmer at La Coopérative Ferme Terre Partagée. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, in partnership with Regeneration Canada, presents Stories of Regeneration, a podcast series exploring why we, as a society, need to get behind the farmers and ranchers who are regenerating the land, ecosystems, and local economies through their agricultural practices and principles. Farmers and ranchers who are striving for great things through regenerative agriculture. Part 4, Sharing the Land, with Rebecca Fraser Chasson of Femme Terre Partagée in Rogersville, New Brunswick, July 19th, 2023. I feel like every time I ask this question, people are really stretching their memory, but can you remember the first time you heard about Regenag? Yeah, no, not necessarily. I think maybe it was one of the first times um, it was a National Farmers Union board meeting. I'm involved with the NFU in New Brunswick. Oh, cool. Someone was talking about regenerative agriculture as like a, not necessarily a new concept, but just the putting a word to um, a set of principles and their interest in it and maybe the principles. And that was probably 10 or so years ago. Okay. It didn't, I think I remember that it kind of struck me as like, that's just like a normal like that's just what we all do kind of like um not necessarily like oh that's something that we have to like look into to see if we could do more not saying by any means that we're like ticking all the boxes or like have attained all the principles in any way but i just it does sometimes feel like there's a lot of the same words or sorry, different words to sort of get at the same things. But I understand that organics has not necessarily taken a turn, but sort of means something that's more certifiable and um, commercial and can look like very different depending on scale or whatever. So And doesn't necessarily touch on as many principles as regenerative agriculture, I guess. Regenerative agriculture doesn't have one definition and one definition alone that everyone agrees on. Aside from that broad definition or foundational concept that Regen Ag is about leaving the land better off than we found it. Just to give you an idea, I'm going to throw out a handful of definitions for regenerative agriculture from different organizations without naming names. Definition number one, a way of farming that focuses on soil health. Definition number two, farming and grazing practices that, among other benefits, 
reverse climate change by building soil organic matter and restoring degraded soil biodiversity, resulting in both carbon drawdown and improving the water cycle. Definition 3. An outcomes-based food production system that nurtures and restores soil health, protects the climate and water resources and biodiversity, and enhances farms' productivity and profitability. Definition number four, a systems-based, holistic look at the land being stewarded and applies various principles with the goal of making the land more productive and biodiverse over time. And definition number five, a set of principles and practices which reverse current trends of degradation in soil, water, and air quality by enhancing the soil ecosystem and restoring its biology. That last one was actually from our friends at Regeneration Canada. You should head over to the website if you want access to just a ton of resources on regenerative agriculture in Canada. I'm sure you noticed through those definitions that they have a lot in common. But like I said, there isn't really one agreed upon definition for regenerative agriculture. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Rebecca just mentioned that for her, regen egg is just farming. Blake Vince, so the grain farmer we heard from in part three of this series. He said he wasn't really into labels when we talked about his practices, but he's definitely farming regeneratively. Rachel Lightfoot, an agriculture producer in Nova Scotia that we're going to hear from in this series very shortly, she farms biodynamically, which is an agriculture system that has a lot in common with Regen Egg. The regenerative agriculture tent, if you will, it's pretty big. It has lots of room for a diversity of agriculture producers using a diversity of practices and who are at different stages of their regenerative journey. Even if they aren't explicitly using the term regenerative agriculture when they're talking about their farm or ranch. It's the principles behind regenerative agriculture that are pretty cut and dry. Principles like understanding the context or minimizing soil disturbance don't leave a heck of a lot of room for interpretation. They do leave a lot of room for application because by design, regenerative agriculture principles are meant to be applied in a way that makes sense for the context an agriculture producer is farming or ranching in. The Stories of Regeneration series is going to cover 10 regenerative agriculture principles. Why 10? Because when you do an internet search for regenerative agriculture principles, you're likely only to come across five, maybe six principles. Regeneration Canada, so our partner in this series, and the organization that created and led the overall Stories of Regeneration project. They added four more principles to reflect the fact that the services regenerative agriculture practices provide have a positive impact that extends beyond the farm or ranch. Those practices have implications for entire communities, watersheds, and ecosystems. So for those of you who are familiar with the six principles of regenerative agriculture, here's the four additional ones we're going to explore through the series. Reciprocity within both nature and human ecosystems, safeguarding water cycles, preserving and restoring natural ecosystems, and prioritizing social justice, food sovereignty, and economic viability. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Rebecca and how she got into agriculture, then out of agriculture, then back into agriculture. (laughs) 
I grew up on this farm, but it was never really seen as a or shared as like a viable option for a, for a career, especially financially, I think. Um, and I didn't really probably show like a super keen interest in agriculture, although I did have an interest for everything that is social justice, and that's what I ended up studying at university. And a lot of that, those like reflections brought me back to the farm, questions about food sovereignty and access to food and globalization. When I finished the degree, I wasn't necessarily with like a clear path to farming that I came back, but it was just like to do something more hands-on, less academic, so I started a small strawberry, organic strawberry U-pick with my dad, which was like something that we hadn't done on the farm before. And uh, then it became like another little project, raising chickens and another project of selling seedlings. And then eventually when it came to starting a CSA, that's where I left the job that I had at the time to farm full time. Were you like one of those farm kids that couldn't get out of here quicker? I find a lot of the ones I met in Alberta by the time they turned 18, they just got out of town. Yeah. No, I like, I appreciated for sure my life on the farm, but we weren't, um, we weren't very pushed to help out. Like we did have sometimes pressure just as part of like, as someone who eats or as someone who contributes to this family, you have to do some things, but we definitely didn't have like chores every day. I was in a lot of like extracurricular activities and that was that was fine and encouraged and not you know you can't do that because you have these farm responsibilities so i appreciated it my growing up on the farm but i wasn't integral to the operation in any way and i wasn't also it wasn't seen like as something that i might do in the future so i think that's why when i started reading about or thinking about like my degree was called justice and globalization and there was a lot of things that like theoretically i felt like connected to the farm that i had connections that i hadn't made and also practically realizing just like, oh, there's a lot of hard skills that I could have learned that I don't have right now, and that, but that I still can, can learn. When I did come back to farm, I always knew, and that was one of the reasons that I never really saw farming as like a viable career, it was obviously the financial side of things, as I was mentioning, but I also saw my dad working so alone all the time, and I just wasn't interested and also didn't feel like I had the capacity both just like mental but also like skill wise so that was part of the reason uh, or the attraction of a co-op and I think it's part of the attraction as well of direct marketing just knowing the people that are eating your food knowing who you're doing this for as well as hosting and, and sharing it can get a bit lonely or monotonous doing repetitive work and work that seems endless sometimes but when you have some moments of sharing and collective work and those kinds of things I think that it's it's a good change. So we grow vegetables and most of them are sold through a CSA. We have 125 to 150 CSA members. We sell especially in Moncton, which is like an hour and some away, but also in Bathurst, more north of New Brunswick. 
and and obviously in Rogersville at the farm as well. And we go to two different farmers markets in Beresford, which is near Bathurst, and Dieppe, which is near Moncton. We also raise some animals. Um, so the, the co-op technically uh, has laying hens and chickens and turkeys. And then, as I was mentioning with our producer members, we also sell lamb, beef, and pork mm. through the co-op. And we also do some cover crops on some of our fields and... Um, both our producer members and we participate to some extent in haying and grain production for the animals as well. Rebecca's family has been farming in the region since 1886, making her a fifth generation farmer, one of the few featured in the Stories of Regeneration series. Most of the agriculture producers we interviewed for the series were somewhere around being a third generation agriculture producer. Her family has been involved in a lot of different types of agriculture production, like Brussels sprouts and dairy over the years. And in 2018, a cooperative was created on her family's land. If you're like me, and you've heard of co-ops before, but you really couldn't explain to someone how it's different from a corporation owned by shareholders, a key difference is how decisions are made, i.e. voting rights. In a co-op, If you're a member of a co-op, you're entitled to one vote when decisions need to be made. So one member, one vote. With shareholders, your voting rights are based on the amount of shares you own. We became certified organic just in 2012, but a lot of that history would have been still some forms of organic agriculture. And they've been raising animals for sure throughout that whole hundred plus years and in 2018 we became a workers co-op and but even but before that time the idea had already been going around circulating even when it was just myself and my dad we sort of like naively were like writing letters to agricultural colleges saying hey we're here and we have access to land and some machinery and some knowledge and we know that those things can be difficult to find for new entrants and let's talk about what that could look like kind of thing and um, in 2014 is when my now partner Kevin came to the farm and was an aspiring farmer even then and we continued with the idea of the co-op but launched the CSA or I had started that same year and then he jumped in and we felt like before we could really become a co-op we'd at least have to have some enterprise going on already and some idea of what that could look like or what diversification projects could could happen and uh, Pierre Olivier found us he was already part of a co-op in Saguenay that was disbanding that was also a workers co-op and he was looking for somewhere else to farm and specifically farm cooperatively and he was interested in leaving Quebec where he felt like rules around agriculture were very very strict and um, there wasn't a lot of possibility in terms of a very diversified farm and so he came in 2017 and then we did kind of a trial year and in 2018 we incorporated so that was five years ago. Um, We're still the same members, although there is a lot of other people that have 
added or been tacked on to what we kind of call the Femme Terre Partage community. So not officially members of the co-op, but Phil has been working at the farm for five years now. And he and his partner, Jen, and their two and soon to be three kids are pretty central to the whole operation. Marvin and Lisa emigrated from France specifically to Rogersville and uh, Marvin actually came as a woofer a couple of times before that's how we met so there's there's some people that are getting grafted onto the project although we don't have yet new members but that continues to be an objective in terms of future projects we'd like to be maybe 10 members or 10 families that are supported by the the co-op and that support the co-op and vice versa. That would involve a lot of diversification in terms of projects, both potentially farming and connected to farming, but not necessarily. So whether that's summer camps or other forms of hosting that we were talking about or more value-added stuff or obviously some other forms of production that we're either not doing or not or that we could do more of or that we could do better but another opportunity or challenge it could be both of a co-op is that things have to be pretty set out and structured um, because it's not just one person or one family that is calling the shots and making decisions and I think that we have to, it has to be clear uh, what the advantages are of being a member or what the differences are between being a member, being an employee, being a volunteer. There's a salary, but as, as we mentioned in the beginning, it's not very high. So how can we get that to be higher? And but also how can we build some advantages into being a member that are maybe not only based on salary so those are all things that we have to to keep working on in hopes of finding or attracting new members and and just even for the people that are there Mm -hmm. in hopes of clarifying and just giving the space for people to be their best selves or whatever (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, that's the problem with people. They're individuals sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, like balancing between the individual and the collective and the co-op, allowing enough autonomy and and freedom, but also having standards and ways that are, you know, set so that everyone knows what to expect and what's expected of them. Which leads actually really nicely into the next question about, like, what led to the decision to create a co-op in 2018? Like, like there's some great things about co-ops and there's also some things that I'm sure can hinder the operation because you got, like, but a lot of people have a say in what's happening in the land that you grew up on. Um, there's all these bylaws you got to adhere to. Like, so what made you decide to pull the trigger on that one? Yeah, I think as, as I mentioned, for me originally, it was just like, well, I know I don't want to farm on my own and feel like I have some advantages like access to land and machinery and mentorship or knowledge in the form of like my dad and my aunt and uncle and some other people around Mm. that I'd like to share with other people if there was openness or desire for that and I know I don't have the skills you know the all-around skills to be a farmer Mm. or on my own so 
what are, you know, one of the advantages of having multiple people would be that we all bring a different skill set to the table. Um, so those were all some of the some of the reasons or advantages. I think a lot of us, like Peo was already, Pierre-Olivier was already a member of a co-op before, and he for sure and a lot of us don't necessarily see each other as like, or see ourselves, I mean, as bosses mm -hmm. or like, and obviously we have to have our own maybe areas of expertise or areas that we manage, but we don't feel comfortable being like, the person that calls all the shots or takes decisions without necessarily consulting. Not that you can, you know, not all, that all um, sole proprietorship type businesses are like that or that they're, it's very top down, but the intention is to have a more horizontally integrated operation. Is there like three different agriculture enterprises here? Like your dad's the cooperative in your own, or is it all one? Or? No, the co-op is one, okay. and uh, there's four members, four founding members who are still the same. Um, myself, my husband Kevin, my dad, and my partner Pierre-Olivier. Um, but my dad also continues. He was running his farm operation a long time before we became co-op Ferme Terre Partagée. And he continues uh, raising beef cattle and pigs. Okay. And my aunt and uncle, who are a little bit down the road, they uh, are also producer members of the co-op. So not the four founding members are worker members. Okay. Um, so they uh, produce lamb mm. and that is sold through the co-op. We're pretty strict in our criteria of who can be a producer member in the sense that you have to live on Pleasant Ridge. We have to know each other and have a sense that we know the products that we're selling. So in the case of their operation, we help with shearing and we help with haying and they help us a ton um, with mechanics and with uh, deliveries. So we're really like, we're really close. We, we, We're not like a marketing co-op where we would sell mm. products from any other farm anywhere else. We, we're a worker co-op, so we have to feel like everyone is helping to produce what we sell and knows what we sell. I mentioned in part two of our series with the Axtons of Minton, Saskatchewan, that the first three farms we visited for the Stories of Regeneration project all seemed to be doing something to regenerate economic opportunities in their communities. And they were all doing this through the ways they'd chosen to operate their farms. I was actually so inspired by this, I wrote an article called Regenerating Rural Opportunities that you can find on the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions website. Rebecca has almost taken it one step further by sharing the land with people who probably could never afford to purchase farmland themselves. People like me. For people looking to get into agriculture, not being able to afford the high price of agriculture land and a lack of agriculture knowledge tend to be two of the biggest barriers they face. And in a way, Rebecca has found a way to address this by sharing what she has and through the co-op. And for Rebecca, she has the benefit of not having to farm alone because, let's face it, farming or ranching can be lonely sometimes. Don't get me wrong, but that solitude can be nice for sure. But when things start going wrong, like they did during the growing season of 2023, 
knowing that you don't have to problem solve entirely on your own can help take off some of the pressure. Rebecca mentioned something in there called a CSA or Community Supported Agriculture. It's a type of direct marketing where consumers pay for a growing season's worth of vegetables up front, usually in the spring, and they get what they get depending on how good or poor a season is. In this way, the producer and consumer are sharing the risk or bounty of a given growing season as opposed to the farmer hoping that people buy their stuff when they go to the farmer's market. The downside of a CSA or any kind of direct marketing is that they can be a lot of work because you've just created a whole new farm job, marketing. I know some agriculture producers who are brilliant at marketing, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say most agriculture producers didn't get into agriculture because they really liked a hustle product. Plus, the retention rates for CSAs really fluctuate. You can lose half of your CSA members after just one year. So I asked Rebecca, why not sell to one of the big grocery store chains? The reason for, I think, some of us or most of us for growing is, and or growing organically or growing uh, regeneratively, is that we're growing what we would like to eat. I don't think any of us would be interested in putting the amount of pesticides or fertilizer or mechanical inputs, although we do use, obviously, we're not against mechanization, but um, that would be needed to grow certain crops with certain standards. I think we'd be not too keen on the amount that we'd have to throw away also because it's not like perfect according to whatever standards. So partly the idea of like growing what we would like to eat and then sharing that with other people I think comes naturally through the CSA but yes it is a lot of work because there's the there's almost two businesses involved there's the business of growing and then there's the business of selling and all of the customer relations that comes with it and uh, writing newsletters and you know just dealing with people that can't come and pick up at whatever time and need to switch and you know it and it's all work that we easily forget because we like it or we see value in it and we see you know talking to people is is especially for the most part people who are really appreciative of what we do um gives it a lot of value so sometimes we forget that yeah that is a lot of a lot of work but the support an agriculture producer can get from CSA members can sure come in handy during a rough growing season like the one in 2023. Remember, that was the spring and summer Canada got hit by wildfires in the west and in the east, drought and floods. When I was talking with Rebecca, it was around mid-June, and that was just a couple of weeks after it was declared that Quebec had no more out-of-controlled wildfires. And it was also just before a state of emergency was declared in Nova Scotia because of flash flooding. I remember driving from Rogersville to Halifax so I could catch my flight back to Alberta. And that was just a couple days before the state of emergency was declared in Nova Scotia. And I had to drive so slow because of all the rain. The exact same thing actually happened to me when I was traveling from interior BC to Vancouver in October after recording one of the two BC episodes for the series. So maybe it's just me. 
If only I could make it rain like that in the prairies. Yeah, the Maritimes and part of Quebec have been dealing with, a, well, maybe everywhere has been dealing with a really difficult season, but just for different reasons. In our case, it's a lot of water, a lot of rain, and some pretty cold temperatures in June, and then some not a lot of heat in July, but at least a little bit warmer, but still uh, not a lot of sun. A lot of rain makes it difficult for many reasons, um, for things that are direct seeded, like carrots and beets and many other crops. Some of the some of the time it was like seeded and then just like a huge downpour where you know that there's considerable washing away of the seeds that have just been planted. It also makes it hard if you're working with machines and tractors because you can't go in the fields when they're too wet and you can't work the soil when it's too wet. It just becomes like completely baked afterwards and really hard. That's been a challenge for everything, but especially weeding. Sometimes we're like weeding in the pouring rain. When you weed, usually with implements, whether they're mechanic or hand tools, the intent is to expose the roots of the weeds to the sun. So clearly that's not happening. So the best we could do was just weed by hand and throw the weeds into the pathways. So that's kind of some firsts. Like we have to weed because the weeds are growing faster than anything else, but we're doing it in the pouring rain. So we always struggle with weed control, but this year is particularly difficult. And I know that it's difficult for everyone. Yeah, it's not been an easy year for sure. We're probably like three weeks behind in terms of like what's in our CSA at this time and um, what we're getting into the ground. We're like really according to our planting calendar, we are about three weeks behind. Now most of what has needed to be sown has been sown, so we're not behind in that way. But we know that there's going to be a challenge once fall comes around as well because we have maybe 30 or 40 percent of our squash that actually germinated and the rest of the seed that just rotted in the ground. A lot of the warmer crops like tomatoes and eggplants and peppers and zucchinis were kind of lagging a lot from missing sun but that in the last week or two we've seen a lot of growth so we're thinking that that's gonna pick up um it'll just be a bit later probably a good two weeks still but yeah we'll try to adapt in the fall and grow more greens and try to make up for some of the crops that didn't do so well germination wise that will still come to fruition, I think, but just not in the quantities that we were hoping. There's still time, and the falls have been warm for the last number of years, so we'll see what that looks like. Um, we generally have some pretty understanding CSA partners, and we, especially the people that have been there for years, know that they have received a lot in the last years. like when we've had good crops of whatever, they were always the first recipients. Mm. Um, so I think because of that, they're extra understanding, but 
this year, we're thinking it'll probably be, they're not going to get less than what they paid for, for sure. Mm -hmm. But they might not, compared to other years, get the abundance that we had before. Right, mm -hmm. no, fair enough. And did you also, like, uh, I was just in Nova Scotia the other day, and they were saying at the start of the growing season that things were unusually dry. Did you have that as well, or was it just wet, 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 wet? We had just, like, one very short dry period mm -hmm. where we had to irrigate, and we lost almost lost a crop of um, kohlrabi because just it was transplanted like right in uh, like two or three day heat wave and a lot of the brassicas we cover with a floating row cover to help protect against insects but it can add a couple degrees heat and so we actually were able to save that and but by replanting some of the ones that died and since then we've had like zero need <laughs> to irrigate <laughs> at all so we haven't yeah we haven't had uh, too much dry this year Maintaining biodiversity is one of the 10 principles of regenerative agriculture that this series explores. If you remember from parts 1, 2, and 3 of this series, nature provides the blueprint in regenerative agriculture. And systems with greater diversity of soil organisms, plants, and animals are more resilient. They tend to have superior soil fertility and respond better to stresses such as diseases, climactic extremes, human impacts, and degradation. Practices like crop rotation, integration of pollinator buffers, elimination of chemical controls like pesticides, and mixing crops and livestock are all beneficial, and all things that Rebecca does on her farm to varying degrees. In fact, the name of the farm has a strong connection to biodiversity. It's also where we got the name for this episode. Yeah, well, I think that's a good point of saying like we're we're all part of biodiversity mm -hmm. and all part of an ecosystem. It is, I think, yeah, when we think about biodiversity, we probably think of like untouched, um, which is definitely not a farm. But if it means a mix of and space for different species, then that's definitely always been the intention for this farm and the name Ferme Terre Partagée comes from the idea that it was shared among generations but also that it was shared and continues to be shared with different species that use this land as well as different humans that have um, even before obviously the Chiasson family. So there's, there's a desire to recognize what's under the in the earth and what walks on the earth and whether that's through the fields and sometimes when we don't want it to or through the woods and also the idea of wanting a mix of productions so not just being focused on even within our vegetable production there's like 40 different crops and but also the importance and role of cover crops and of hay fields and of grain and the the place for animals the benefits that they bring with the access to manure and uh, the kind of closed loop that we're going for of 
being able to feed animals with crops grown on our farm and using manure from the animals back onto the fields. What are actually like some of the challenges of doing the closed loop system? Well, I wouldn't say that our system is like a fully closed loop, Closing but loop. <laughs> um, that, that continues to be the intention or the hope. Growing grain is pretty challenging and requires some pretty specific machinery that is often costly and challenging to access and repair. Sometimes I've heard farmers say like, I, I would pr- prefer to buy grain and let other people, other farmers lose money. <laughs> oh, <geez>. um, <laughs> yeah, I guess anything with animals, like we've seen uh, not enough and not sustained enough, but a bit of a rise in uh, small scale vegetable growing, mm-hmm. a number of farms, and that's great. Um But I think it's because it's not necessarily because everyone's so passionate about vegetables. It's just that that's the most accessible, I think, form of agriculture. Mm. But we definitely need people to raise animals. And just maybe because it requires more machinery and, I don't know, maybe more dealing with death and shit and (laughs) stuff that's less attractive. Often when we think of biodiversity and ecosystems, we tend to think of places where humans don't live. Places like conservation areas or national parks. But in a city like the one I stayed in when I was in New Brunswick, so Moncton. Moncton is part of an ecosystem. We as human beings are part of biodiversity. And the agricultural products we produce from the smallest strawberry to the biggest cow contribute to both. A closed-loop system in agriculture is when the nutrients that are created on farm are fed back into the farm, usually after living organisms have processed or consumed those nutrients. A cow grazing, for example. A cow grazing pasture adds nutrients back into that pasture through its manure and urine. Darren Qualman of the National Farmers Union does a really great job of explaining in episode 37 of our podcast how with the introduction of fossil fuels, we broke that loop apart. And all of a sudden, agriculture was dependent on external inputs, more so than ever, external inputs that weren't being produced on farm, like fuels and synthetic fertilizers. In many ways, regenerative agriculture works to close that loop back up again, primarily by building up soil function so the land is less reliant on external inputs when it comes to producing food. Like agriculture producer Derek Axton said in part two of Stories Regeneration, we may not actually realize the potential of our soils if we just get out of the way. So that's something that we try to do. I was listening to a podcast about regenerative agriculture, a farm in Quebec, and they were saying how you should put as much time and money and effort into your cover crops as you do into your cash crops. And I was like, yeah, we're not there. Um, But I do see the value of that. But that's also the principle that maybe we'll get into of understanding context and whether the those constraints are financial or 
human or whatever, it seems like there's always lots of them. But uh, we do have access to some seeding and uh, disking and harrowing larger scale machines than maybe some other smallest small scale vegetable operations so because of that we're able to do many acres and we've often done buckwheat as cover crop but also weed suppression because it grows so fast and we do have a lot of issues with weeds so we use that and then it just gets disked back into the field Um, we've done also a either a winter wheat or a winter rye um, that we seed in this in the fall to just leave the ground covered over winter and then disc before putting in our uh, summer crops sometimes like this year it's done too well and then it (laughs) we have it in our rows of carrots and in our garlic (laughs) yeah (laughs) and we're doing some other rye to harvest uh, as grain and as straw because it grows really, really well and really fast and sometimes is used as a cover crop with a lot of density and health in the plants. And there's some other things that are not necessarily farming related, like I mentioned uh, woodlot and just responsible wood harvesting and in a lot of the woodlots it's no wood harvesting but my dad does use wood for heating the barn and we heat our greenhouse with wood as well and lots of building materials that are milled on the farm and uh, we we try some of us are more naturalist than others um, (laughs) and better at recognizing what animals we have that are that we're cohabiting with but all of us are very interested just some people like my mom is like super knowledgeable so a couple of days ago or weeks now we found a nest in the strawberries which with two eggs and two hatchlings that we just took a photo of and then left and I think according to her they were bobolink which is like a I'm not sure if it's endangered but it's um it's a like a small bird that often nests in hay fields so it can be more at risk obviously from like machinery and being hayed so when we do have the opportunity to recognize and then just protect birds or other species we try to take the opportunity like in that case or last year we took down a barn on the farm that had a lot of swallows nests Mm. and so I knew that we were and swallows are really beautiful and but also really practical for um, getting rid of mosquitoes (laughs) and uh, I knew that they would probably be coming back and looking for those nests and so we built four or five uh, like swallow houses or whatever that we tacked onto another old shed and um, those tree swallows have come back there and the barn swallows have actually started nesting in that other shed that we like leave the the door and the and the windows it's like very old so open and they can come and go as they please so yeah we just try to recognize what other species are around Mm. um still try to protect sometimes from them like 
raccoons in the corn and bears in the grain field and stuff like that. Sounds like, like this is really moose country out this way. That's just they must wreak havoc when they walk through a field. Well, we you hear a lot about farms that have a lot of deer issues oh, um, yeah. okay. and that even have to put up like very expensive deer fences. Oh, shoot. You don't hear so much about moose getting into fields. Huh. I'm not sure why. Because we see them. We see them in the woods. We see them in the field sometimes, at, like close to the woods. But we don't, we haven't experienced and I haven't heard from people saying that like moose have come in and like eaten all their crop of cabbage. Right. But you do for deer. So plus they say that like moose and deer don't so much cohabitate. Uh-huh. And like it's either moose country or deer country. And here it is, more moose, although we're seeing more deer. I've never seen deer growing up here. And then in the last years, we've seen some. So I don't know if that's changing or uh, they're just living together more. Or... Uh, that is interesting. Huh? Mm-hmm. So that, that's actually a really good point that like working with biodiversity can actually be a bit of a pain in the ass sometimes. Too. <laughs> like, it gets in the way of production and can ruin production in some cases too. For sure. Yeah. Like it's a, the farm is a very controlled biodiversity so there's some species that you clearly favor over (laughs) others whereas the woods or some fields that are more left fallow or some areas of the farm are more whatever grows and uh, profits you can't say that in english profit um the best is 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 fine but yeah just i guess personally also we just try to like explore the the land this year has been like such a rainy year so i know that there's a lot of mushrooms around and hoping to get out to pick some chanterelles nice i was thinking even today maybe we could put some in our in our csa basket for people that wanted it just because it's good representation of the season so yeah uh nobody said working with biodiversity doesn't have its challenges But by building up and working with biodiversity, it is a great way to hedge your bets no matter what kind of growing season Mother Nature or the financial markets throw at an agriculture producer. As Rebecca mentioned, because it had been so wet in the summer, there was a possibility of adding chanterelle mushrooms to her CSA baskets. A little later in the series, we'll hear from Aaron Goodard of Snowy Mountain Farm in Coston, British Columbia, about how on-farm or on-ranch diversity is a great way to increase on-farm or on-ranch resiliency. Yeah, like I said, it's kind of controlled biodiversity in the farm or at least certain areas of the farm, but it doesn't mean that you can't... uh, appreciate or benefit from i mean even weeds whether it's clover in the carrots or as long as the carrots are able to get a bit ahead of it there's a lot of benefit to that uh, nitrogen fixing weed and with your cover crops you're planting it where you plan on putting in vegetables or is it more for your grain fields? Yeah, often it's preceding vegetables. Okay. Sometimes also smaller quantities like in a bed of vegetables once it's been harvested. Okay. Um, We do reuse beds like 
to usually twice, not all of them, but depending on when the crop is harvested, if it's something that harvested is harvested like now, it could be reused again for a different crop family in the fall. Okay. Um, but if it's not going to be used, then sometimes we'll put like a peas and oats or just by seeding by hand in that in that field just so that it, I mean in that bed just so that it's covered, but uh, larger sections of cover crops are usually preceding vegetables or strawberries or... We haven't been grazing or integrating animals right into the the fields. Mm. It's usually uh, transporting manure onto the fields. Yeah, that's something that we've been doing for many years now is um, using a wildflower, it's called bee feed mix, like a a pollinator mix that blooms really impressively throughout the season, like it's really well put together to include things that are super fast growing and fast bloom within a couple of weeks of being seeded to like way until after frost. So with just one planting, we can have blooms for the whole many months. And it's also really beautiful, which is nice. Uh, When we had our event on farm with Regen Canada this year, I was telling people, I'm sure you're disappointed because the photo that we had last year was of the barn and this like really nice pollinator mix that was all in... um, poppy flowers and it was so nice we had people stopping and taking pictures and um, this year we just couldn't get it seeded Mm. so it's the first year that we haven't um, that we haven't planted it but we will again Um, we had a couple of plans for we also wanted to try seeding buckwheat in the pathways between our we use um, landscape fabric on our brassicas and onions and so that's all covered but our pathways are often left open and we are just uh, weeding either with like a wheel hoe or just manual tools because it's too tight to get the tractor between the landscape fabrics so we were hoping to try to seed buckwheat and then just like weed whack it or whatever but that didn't happen either and now it's like either super hard pack or literally like puddles still so <laughs> what what's the benefits for your farm to support biodiversity depends on the practice i guess but when we we're talking about the pollinator mix like it's beautiful and nice to help bees but bees mostly help us mm. um so it also means that there's better pollination in our vegetable crops and potentially better production there's a clear benefit right there in terms of like using the manure from the animals that we have on the farm there's also a clear benefit i think that it's more work and i'm sure more costly than it would be using like a synthetic fertilizer but Mm. it's also about growing the food that we feel we would like to eat and that we feel is safe and contributes to community and environmental and health so um, sometimes a lot of the benefits are 
not necessarily measurable. I mean, mm. like having uh, swallows on the farm, we think is um, probably helps with less mosquitoes. Oh, yeah. um, mosquitoes out here are horrible. So that must help yeah. with mental health. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's probably helps with mental health just to see them like swoop, swooping around, which is really nice. Mm. Same with pasture, I guess, just more work maybe to move animals to newer pasture, but at the same time they're eating and growing and keeping the soil healthy and growing from healthy soils so it's definitely still more beneficial than like either growing grain or buying grain Mm. to feed animals i mean clearly there's still animals that need grain but ruminants that can be on pasture and can contribute to the soil's health while getting the soil to 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 contribute to their health uh, oh, one thing about the biodiversity I wanted to ask you, the fact that you, you've, like, you have this control of biodiversity with like different livestock, different vegetables, is that also like a good way to diversify like revenue and sort of can help a little bit with financial security? Because if you're just doing one thing and oh, yeah, that absolutely. year doesn't like the wet, you're kind of screwed unless you get crop yeah. insurance or something like yeah, that. That's a, yeah, that's a good point. Like we need it for something like a CSA where mm-hmm. you're trying to offer folks like a a diversity of crops and you know not the same 10 vegetables for 18 weeks in a row but you also can benefit from it like you said in different different years i mean there's never i don't think there's going to be a season where all 40 vegetables do well although there's some where more of them do well than this year for example Mm -hmm. but all the brassicas are doing are looking really good we can't say what insects will get into them later but for now they like the wet and they like the cold and they um so they're growing well even in june when the temperatures were pretty worrisome for things like tomatoes they were don't care so it's looking like a good year for broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage and all those things and same for like a year where three years ago was like super dry um and hot and the corn did pretty well and we had a good year of potatoes because there were like it was too hot for potato bugs which (laughs) is rare around here so yeah there's there's always something sometimes it's not the crops that you would like or it's the less popular or whatever but there's always something you can depend on i am a bit overzealous about growing potatoes as people who know me and people who listen to episode 36 regenerative potatoes very well know by the way growing potatoes regeneratively is pretty challenging we learned in part three with ontario farmer blake vince Minimizing soil disturbance is one of the principles of regenerative agriculture. Potatoes don't just pop out of the ground when they're ready to be harvested. You have to dig them out, which honestly, in my opinion, is part of the fun. Generally, growing a market garden or a diversity of vegetables regeneratively is challenging. Some of the standard regenerative agriculture practices like minimizing soil disturbance, keeping the soil covered, maintaining living roots year-round, They're doable in a beef operation or even if you're growing grains, but 
but not so easy with a diversity of veggies because of weed pressure and the amount of plant that needs to be harvested come harvest time. For example, with root vegetables, you can't really leave the root in the ground year round because that root is literally the thing you want to eat or sell. So I find it really impressive that veggie producers like Rebecca can still pull it off and apply regenerative agriculture principles on their farm. Again, it's that understanding the context of your farmer ranch principle that really helps out here because it allows her and others to apply those principles in a way that makes sense for her farm. Meaning she doesn't have to sacrifice profitability for all those lovely social and environmental outcomes that go along with regen egg, some of which we've covered in this series already, like reducing the carbon footprint of agriculture, keeping watersheds healthy, and creating rural economic opportunities. I hope I'm not making it sound like following regenerative agriculture principles if you're a veggie grower is impossible because that's definitely not the case. If you go to the farmer's blog on the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions website, you can read about a veggie farmer from Red Deer, Alberta, so Mike Kozlowski, who a few years back was experimenting with no-till, so what Blake Vince was doing in part three with his grains. But in Mike's case, he was doing no-till veggie production. There's even that concept of alley cropping where you grow a crop between rows of fruit trees, nut trees, just plain old wonderful trees, and that crop could potentially be vegetables. A Wisconsin agriculture producer named Mark Shepard was growing asparagus with his alley cropping system. We talk about alley cropping in episode 32 of our podcast. Should consumers care about regenerative agriculture? Can they just go buy their potatoes and continue with their lives? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't know how long our lives will continue <laughs> if we do that. Okay. I think it's the same. In a way, it's you know the same kind of as the research and the time that people put into finding the best product of whatever else. Yet we feel like. Food is just, it's all equivalent or it's just a matter of nutrients and, uh, you know, calories that we're putting into our body or whatever. Whereas we're able to spend like hours researching, I don't know, some piece of furniture that we want to put into our house, including obviously how it will look, but also who made it and, you know, where we're going to get it and what either store or artisan is going to get our money and you know why and so I think it's the same we just have to come to the the realization as and I think a lot of people have that the money that we're putting into food is also about the money that we're putting into our communities and into the environment or just just that it has a way bigger potential impact than uh, just giving our money to multinational corporations and being okay with you know just the 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 calorie count in our diet or whatever yeah and a follow-up question to that is why should consumers support agriculture producers that are practicing regen egg with like transition or at least trying to do it it's really costly to grow food it's costly definitely like the 
just in terms of like accounting lines and budgeting lines, but it can also be costly on health and、mm. mental health, and it's tempting. And I think that's the the hoops that farmers have been asked or pushed to jump through to just like cut those costs. To a very very minimum, and make food as cheaply as possible, and that's part of the reason that we're facing the crises that we're facing now. Both the farm debt crisis, where there's so much of the dollar that's not staying on the farm, and the climate crisis, where we're just producing food as Just like trying to trying to do what it seems like consumers have wanted, producing the cheapest food possible, sacrificing humans in the form of low wages, and sacrificing land in the form of just abuse、uh, and cash crop after cash crop after cash crop, sacrificing the the well biodiversity for one、mm. of of farms. And now we're realizing that maybe there's well, there's some consumers that don't want that, or that we didn't realize what kind of impact、uh, asking farmers to grow food cheaply would have、um, on you know so many different aspects of our communities and of the world. That seems like now we're putting the potential burden of solving climate change. Again, onto farmers, and of saying now you have to produce food, but also, you know, keep soils or regenerate soils and keep them healthy, and also, you know, create good jobs for your communities, and also give us、um, not give, but you know,、uh, provide、um, organic. Food that contributes to the health of the entire community and world. So, if that's what we're asking, <laughs> and if we're serious about that, then we clearly are going to need like massive forms of support to farms for them to do that. And so, not only in the form of people buying products that they rep, you know, think. Is representative of what we need for the world, but that's a you know somewhere to start for consumers, I guess. A report released by the National Farmers Union in 2020 found that between 1985 and 2018, agriculture expenses consumed 95% of agriculture revenue in Canada, so it left about 5% for the actual agriculture producer. One of the arguments for transitioning to regenerative agriculture is that a greater percentage of that revenue should be able to stay on farm because an agriculture producer has less to buy in terms of inputs. Blake Vince of Merlin, Ontario, who we heard from in part three, he mentioned the decreases in his operating costs put less pressure on him to come up with massive yields for. Quite a few agriculture producers making up for that lack of net income means going into debt or having an off-farm job to subsidize their farming habits. According to Statistics Canada, off-farm income accounted for 60% of total income of farm families in 2020. So you could be thinking at this point, if 
agriculture producers aren't netting that much. They're going into debt, they're having to do off-farm work, and regenerative agriculture is supposed to help address all three of these things. Why aren't all producers switching over to regenerative agriculture today? Remember, transitioning from the way of farming and ranching that has dominated North America since the end of the Second World War to a regenerative system is not like flicking a light switch. It takes time. In the case of the three producers we heard from in part one, two, and three of the series, or what I like to call book one of the Stories of Regeneration series, it took like 15 to 20 years of going down the regenerative path to start seeing some results. As Rebecca said, producers are going to need support to make this transition. And right now in Canada, the main source of financial support for transitioning over to regenerative agriculture or agricultural climate solutions, which are two extremely similar systems, the main source of financial support is something called the On-Farm Climate Action Fund, or OFCAF. It's been around since 2022, so relatively new, and it's a program that agriculture producers can apply to to cover some of the costs involved in adopting agricultural climate solutions. I'd say it's a good start for sure, I'm just not too sure what's going to happen to the program. I know in Alberta it's fully subscribed and I'm not too sure what's going to happen with further years of off-calf. If we want this change in our agriculture sector, producers are going to need more help from us. Well, we were talking about like regenerative agriculture as an important term that you know has a lot of principles behind it but that may or may not just become another term that is more or less meaningless or eventually co-opted by multinational corporations i think organic agriculture was meant to have or certainly was intended by some people to have way more value in terms of like the social and community aspects of what we thought organic agriculture represented and now we're realizing that it's really just like the label and the very basic set of standards and that may or may not be what will happen with regenerative agriculture so i don't think that we can look for like (laughs) or it wouldn't be an advancement if we're to say we now just have regenerative agriculture stickers on some of the food in our large chain grocery stores but we're still not able to talk to those farmers or know what that actually means that Mm. it's regenerative so even though it's more work and even though it's less convenient i think that it's pretty important to have the chance to talk to farmers you know maybe you're not asking them like super in-depth questions about cover crops or animal management or whatever, but at least to know that you could or that you have the opportunity or that there's an openness or interest to have a conversation with the the farmers from which you're buying. In addition to the fact that when you're buying from a large grocery store, there's very little of that money that's actually going to farmers, whereas when you're buying it directly from farmers, there's a lot more of the dollar that they're able to retain clearly not enough of it um but also some of the money that they're not retaining is going to other businesses in their community or in 
your community. So definitely how people how people purchase food, but、um, politically, like I said, if we're really asking farmers to help mitigate climate change, well, we're going to need a lot more support for farms, whether that's in the form of Research, but also in the form of、uh, financial support and 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 applied research that's really on farm and farmer driven and、um, peer connected, or you know, just ways for that information to circulate within networks of farmers. And、uh, I I don't know about elsewhere in Canada, but I have a feeling we're not. That different, or other provinces、uh, and regions are not that different from New Brunswick, where we're still very far from, like even our Department of Agriculture being concerned about food sovereignty,、mm. and that it, there is no mission to actually grow food for New Brunswickers. There's a, it's an export-driven market where the the, the Intention is to grow the GDP.、Mm-hmm. Um, so if we don't see those political changes and visions, then and you know if we don't connect farming and the agriculture and the Department of Agriculture to Department of Environment or、mm-hmm. you know then we're not.、Uh, it's kind of just like、uh, blanket statements or whatever of like. Farmers are going to support climate change or whatever. Hopefully, also talking less about the opportunities of climate change、mm-hmm. and even adaptation, which is obviously important. But talking about mitigation and, but not just talking, but actually putting our money where our mouth is and、mm-hmm. seeing what actual changes can happen when we have or when we put the resources to it. When I hear producers like Rebecca talk like that, it makes me feel like they're farming in a way that, well, they feel handcuffed. That they'd love to do more to regenerate the land, ecosystems, communities, even people, but they really can't because of financial restraints and demands from the markets. So obviously, my brain does that thing where it spirals and begins to wonder, what happens if we take those handcuffs off? Why do you care about regenerative agriculture? Why are you doing this? Some days I'm not so sure about why. Not necessarily why I'm farming. I mean, most days I'm pretty, sh- you know, pretty sure and feel pretty lucky to be doing this. But I, I know I wouldn't be farming other than you could say regeneratively. And like I said, I'm. Sh- I know that we're not doing everything that we know we could do, and we're definitely not ticking all of the boxes, even with the many principles of regeneration. But Although sometimes I say that I would like to be like a public servant farmer, you know, just in the sense that it would be cool if farming was actually like a public service, or if we, you know, we're so far from that. But like,、yeah. if、um, you were seen as in the same way as a teacher or a, or a nurse or a, you know, as something that you're doing for the for the common good、mm. and that I, you know I I would like to you know farm be a farmer for like a hospital or something like that I still think that I would need the the kind of connection that comes with direct marketing、mm. just of like seeing where your food is going and how it's being 
used and appreciated, and I think that gives it a lot of uh, a lot of meaning. But doesn't mean that I would need to yeah like run a CSA or do <laughs> everything to actually market and sell each vegetable. But that connection of knowing people, I think, makes it like you really have to be able to stand behind what you're growing, and it's not always the nicest aesthetically but and often it is but you know that at least it's the best that you can do or the safest that you could do or that you feel like you would eat that right out of the field so yeah I I don't think I would be able to farm more conventionally and know the people that are eating and consuming and feel 100% good about that. Isn't that the type of farmer you'd want to buy your food from? Thank you for listening to part four of Stories of Regeneration. We've got more great stories from Canada's regenerative agriculture farmers and ranchers coming your way soon. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based organization empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and participant-driven projects like the Regenerative Agriculture Lab and the Six Tipi Agriculture Project. We produce a farmer's blog, and of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Shiana Younger, Kristen Mountain, Shelley Seed, Lance Tailfeathers, Susan Solway, and Aiden Grind. The podcast is funded by a variety of Alberta-based funders and funders based in other parts of Canada. The Stories of Regeneration project is primarily funded by Agriculture and Agrifoods Canada. The project is led by a great organization called Regeneration Canada, a not-for-profit organization that advocates for soil health to mitigate climate change and guarantee a healthy food system, an organization Rural Roots is proud to partner with. For additional information, videos, blog posts, and digital materials about the agriculture producers featured throughout the series, visit regenerationcanada.com. And a big shout out to the Regeneration Canada team, so Antonius, Sarah, Ali, and Paige, and the film crew, Jean-Marc, Phil, and Obed, who worked very, very hard to bring this project to life. The interview with Rebecca took place in the traditional unceded territory of the Maliseet and the Mi'kmaq peoples. My parts of the episode were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Happy farming wherever in the world you are. And remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farm.